Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. We're back for the second part of my interview with Dillinger historian and author Ellen Polson, author of Don't Call Us Malls, a marvelous book about the women behind some of the most famous bank-robbing gangsters of Depression-era America. In the earlier episode with Ellen, she talked about the many escapades of John Dillinger and the women involved in his life. In this episode, we branch out and cover Mrs. Babyface Nelson, the girlfriends of the Barker Carpus gang, and other Dillinger gang members, and a little bit about Bonnie Parker, too. Let's go to the interview now. One of the reasons I like your book is that you smash the stereotypes of a gun mall. You write about a lot of different women, each their own unique character. So if you don't mind, let's go through some of the women you devote time to in your book. And let's start with Mary Kinder, who you call the Queen of Gangland. Who was she and why is she honored with that title? <laughs> and um, Mary Kinder was called the Queen of Gangland in the media. It's not really something that I invented, uh, but uh, I'll allude to the fact that she was the Queen of the Dillinger Gang. Not necessarily the Queen of Gangland. I would give that um, title maybe to um, Mae West. <laughs> Somebody in the movies who you all think of, Gladys George or Ann Sheridan. But uh, for that place of time, she was called the Queen of Gangland for the following reason. And I will outline it without getting into too many geek-like technicalities. She was arrested with John Dillinger and Harry Pierpont, Charles Makeley, Russell Clark, Opal Long, and Evelyn Frechette in Tucson, Arizona in uh, January of 1934. Now, for non-geeks, that was the period when Dillinger was very much in the headlines, and they were being called the terror gang by the media now, the media at that point was very much a localized entity as a result of Captain Matt Leach's connections with the press. He was very friendly with the press. They loved him. He was giving them information that was raising a lot of eyebrows. Other police officers were 
they were in awe that a police officer would give so much information and they really didn't like what he was doing, but he was providing the newspapers and the newspapers were providing the general public with this excitement. And this was, as you know, the height of the depression. Uh, thrills were hard to come by and the three cent newspaper was providing the thrills. So when Mary Kinder was arrested with the terror gang, now, this Captain Matt Leach knew that she had been involved in the Michigan City escape, the, this big escape that released several dangerous convicts into uh, society that had taken place a couple of months before, several of whose members, several of whose escapees were now running around with Dillinger and being called the terror gang. I hope I'm not getting away from myself with this kind of genealogy that I'm giving you. So Mary was revealed by Captain Matt Leach to a writer named Basil Gallagher as the queen of gangland or the queen of the gun malls, a master strategist of terrorists. And I quote, now in those days, a terrorist was a domestic, an anarchist. It doesn't have the connotation to terrorists that unfortunately we have today. So Mary Kinder was called the queen of gangland and the queen of the gun laws, more or less because it was known to insiders that she had had an important role to play in the Michigan City escape. And that was the primary reason. Those charges didn't stick anyway, by the way. Once she was brought back to Indianapolis and held for a grand jury investigation, they came up with a no bill because they, ha they had no evidence, you know, so they let her go. One of the other reasons that Mary Kinder was given this title uh, with so much license was through no fault of her own. She was, she was married to a man, then divorced, who was serving time in prison. Her brother was in prison. It, it, it sounds like something out of a scene from my cousin Vinny. Remember, my brother's a mechanic, my uncle's a mechanic. Let's see, her husband was in prison, her brother was in prison. Another brother, Charles Northern, was in prison. Her sister's husband was in prison. It really sounds like a my cousin Vinny, right? Sure. So she had so many relatives that were serving time in the uh, Indiana State Penitentiary that she was just ripe for this title, the Queen of Gangland. And Matt Leach, who really had it in for Mary, and, you know, he was her nemesis. He said that her career started from the time she joined the Dillinger mob following the outbreak of 10 convicts to her capture in Tucson. So it was a no-brainer that Mary was going to get that title. Interestingly enough, the other women that were arrested with her in Tucson really didn't get any spotlight at all, and they were able to slip out of town unnoticed. They weren't uh, held. They weren't extradited to another state like she was. They were simply released. That was Evelyn Frechette, and that was Opal Long. At the time that Mary was being crowned the Queen of Gangland, nobody even knew Evelyn Frechette's actual identity, and she slipped out of custody under the name Anne Martin. So identity was an important component to whether or not these women 
could be held because Mary Kinder's identity was very straightforward because of the investigations of Captain Matt Leach. She was held, she was charged, she was given this flamboyant title. Whereas the other women that were arrested with the gang were still virtual unknowns and they were able to slip out unnoticed. So the idea of the John Dillinger gang is a pretty fluid concept. There were multiple incarnations of the Dillinger gang with lots of members moving in and out. There was the gang pre-Tucson arrest. Guys like Harry Pierpont, Charles Makeley, Russell Clark. And then there was the post-Crown Point prison breakout gang with guys like Homer Van Meter and Babyface Nelson and Three Finger Jack Red Hamilton. So let's talk about some of these post-Crown Point gang members and the women who followed them. For instance, the sisters, uh, Pat Charrington and Opal Long, who actually had a foot in with with both gangs. Yes, I'll talk about Opal Long and Pat Charrington, and I'd like to say that you certainly have done your Dillinger reading and you, you know a great deal about it. There were, as you say, different segments to Dillinger's career, Um, If I may, there was also a period before the Terror Gang and the Tucson episodes, and that was Dillinger's white cap period when he was hanging out with low-level bank robbers, men like William Shore. That was uh, Paul Lefty Parker. That was when he first became associated with Harry Copeland. These are people that were also important to Dillinger's career. Those people were arrested early on. Most of them were in custody by December of 1933. And during the White Cat period, Dillinger didn't have any one specific mall that he was hanging out with. He more or less was keeping company with um, prostitutes, and then he drifted over to Mary Longmaker in the summer of 33. Opa Long and Pat Sherrington got together with Dillinger, as I said before, sometime between the summer of 33 and the fall of 33. It is believed that Opa Long was keeping company with Dillinger gangster Russell Clark as far back as 1924. Russell Clark was um, incarcerated during the 1920s, uh, from about the mid-1920s until his escape from Michigan City in 1933. Some historians believe that Opa Long was his wife, that her actual name was Wilson, I believe, Bernice Wilson. I don't subscribe to that theory myself. Maybe they're right and I'm wrong, but I've never seen any documentation to attest to the fact that Opa Long was actually married to Russell Clark. In fact, when she tried to visit him after his arrest and conviction, when he was incarcerated in Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio, the warden pointedly refused to allow her entry because he said she couldn't prove she was married to him. She had no documentation. Now, documentation to women who would have to uh, abandon everything they own to get out of a hideout during a shootout, well, maybe you don't have your birth certificate on you at all times, right? So Opa Long is this kind of, maybe she was married to Clark, maybe she wasn't, depending on which historian you talk to. 
Now, Oprah Wong's sister was Pat Charrington. Pat was uh, younger than Opal by a couple of years. The two seemed to be very close, very tight sisterhood there. Their background is virtually unknown. They gave some information to the FBI about starting out in Oklahoma or no paper again. There's nothing on these women to substantiate the statements they made to the FBI about their background. So we're going on what they told the FBI, if you want to believe it or not believe it. Some people say, well, they lied about everything, so I don't believe that they came through Oklahoma. But um, all of that aside, I guess to paraphrase, their background is just simply not known. We do know, however, that Pat Sherrington was married in the 1920s, and she had a little girl. The little girl's name was June. Dillinger called her June Bug, and uh, June was actually somebody that Pat brought around with her when she hung out with the Dillinger gangsters. Uh, at one point, June went to live with the family of Russell Clark in Detroit. And Opal Long, as her aunt, I'm from New York, so I say aunt, not aunt. <laughs> Opal Long took care of June as long as she was staying in the house of Russell Clark. And uh, when Opal Long was out on the road with Russell Clark, his family members took care of June in that period when Pat Sherrington could not. So uh, Pat Sherrington, now we have... A sister act, which was very common. Also, the Barker Corpus and the Dillinger Gangsters liked sisters. The reason for this was if one woman could be trusted to keep her mouth shut, the chances were that her sister could be trusted to keep her mouth shut, and it was a safe bet to hang out with them. So you you saw these alliances where sisters were, were in a gang together, and Opal Long and Pat Sherrington were, beyond a doubt, the women who were the most loyal to John Dillinger. They were very close to Evelyn Freshette. In fact, the trio was very tight and close to outsiders. And uh, there's evidence that Evelyn stayed friendly with possibly Opal Long, long after the Dillinger era. Um, I'll get to what ultimately happened to them um, in a little while. If you'd like, I'll, I'll keep talking about their uh, connection to the Dillinger gang for a moment more. Yeah. And, and also, if you could talk about their personalities and their, their physical appearances as well, because it's so foreign to the general stereotype of this kind of sexy, seductive gangster mall. Are you talking about Opal Long? Probably, right. <laughs> Opal Mack Truck Long. Um, people who have read all the Dillinger books are familiar with the with the title Opal Mack Truck Long because it was uh, listed, actually uh, itemized in John Tolan's classic, The Dillinger Days. I don't personally believe anybody ever called her that. I think that that arose out of descriptions that were published in newspapers at the time where they said she looked like a Mack truck. Opal at one point was overweight to a point that was probably a little bit uh, 
extreme for the 1930s. And so a lot of people who hung around with them would, would laugh at her behind her back and say that, you know, make fun of her body parts. She was also extremely nearsighted. Again, in the 1930s, this kind of uh, probably reduced some people to a kind of, uh, if I may, Mr. Magoo appearance. I guess a lot of uh, baby boomers know what I mean when I say Mr. Magoo. Millennials, probably not. But uh, a squinting character, uh, a squinting caricature of a nearsighted person, she was a dependent upon her eyeglasses she couldn't see without them so she was uh, also in the words of matt leach dillinger's nemesis and the police officer who had quite a lot to say about the dillinger gang early on that she was an unattractive and sloppy dresser again people in those days took a lot of pride in appearance you didn't see people like you see today walking around with deliberately with holes in their pants and things dressing nicely was considered a very important thing uh, in all levels of society so um she was considered a sloppy dresser so that was quite a disparaging remark to make about her she was a very tough cookie. Uh, Opa Long was <laughs> described by one of the arresting officers in Tucson. He, he said, I've heard a lot of cursing in my day, but Opa Long, man, she was something else. <laughs> she uh, fought with police officers when they tried to arrest her man, Russell Clark, physically slammed a door in the uh, in the face of them and broke one of the officer's fingers. I think Dallas Ford was the police officer. Opalong broke his finger. She was uh, photographed in Tucson, all black and blue. She put up such a fight. She was one of those real skiings of gangland. It's funny, they gave Mary Kinder the title, but I would give it to Opalong. She never talked. She never gave any information. And they came to visit her even when she was, after she was arrested and being held on harboring charges, she told FBI agents, I've never given any information in my life and I'm not going to start now. And they walked away from her with nothing. She was a true, it's funny, she didn't look like a true mall, but in her character and her comportment, she was a true mall. Pat Sherrington, her sister, was not a one-man woman. You know, Opal Long was the one-man woman. She was devoted to Russell Clark until his arrest and life imprisonment, at which time she remarried. I'll get to that a bit uh, later. But her sister, Pat Sherrington, went through three Dillinger uh, relationships. Her first was, uh, was it three? I think so. Some say two, some say three. Her first was with Harry Copeland, who was one of Dillinger's white cap gang associates, whom Dillinger was doing bank robberies with shortly after his own parole and while he was funding the Michigan City escape. After Harry Copeland's arrest, she became quite chummy with Charles Makeley. And then her, as she claimed, her real true love, was Dillinger gangster John Red Hamilton. And we haven't mentioned John Hamilton yet in our discussion today, but she was uh, 
supposedly very devoted to John Hamilton. And when she was told that John Hamilton was dead, she went crazy. Yes, yes, right. We will be back after a brief break. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned. So the very first podcast episode I did, I'm friends with, with Paul McAbee, and I'm sure oh, you've read yes, his, his so book, Dillinger Slept Here. friends with him, too. Oh, very neat. Yes. Just for listeners who haven't heard that episode for a while, Maccabee tells the story of the Dillinger gang's escape from Little Bohemia and the gun battle they fought as as they hightailed it back into Minnesota at the Hastings Spiral Bridge. Sheriff's deputies and a Hastings police officer fired into the car, mortally wounding three-fingered Jack Hamilton, a.k.a. Red Hamilton, right? Yes. Uh, was, um, he was uh, really damaged by that gunfight. I think it's assumed that he died an agonizing death. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He was in, in terrible pain and bleeding, and, and Dillinger and, and Van Meter were, were doing whatever they could to find a doctor. And, and I just wanted to add that because some of the people I talk about 
in the show oftentimes make appearances in other episodes in different contexts. But yes, yes, please continue with the sisters. I, I'd love to hear more. Oh, yes. And uh, before I continue with that, I, I might add that, you know, Babyface Nelson, after, who was a true psychopath, in my opinion, after Hamilton died, he, he wanted to exploit that fact. He said, oh, now they're going to pin everything on John Hamilton. We don't have to worry. We're home free. So uh, just as an aside, uh, we, we need to talk about his wife a little bit at some point. Helen Gillis, remind me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that's basically what happened to Oprah Long and Pat Charrington is kind of sad. They were kind of hangers-on, leeches maybe. They were gangland leeches that were had no uh, means of support whatsoever, and they were hanging around with the Dillinger gang. And uh, when the money dried up, I mean, when when John Hamilton died, and Pat Sherrington went absolutely crazy. Well, why do you think she went absolutely crazy? This meant no more money, no more uh, pockets stuffed with cash and envelopes slipped under the table from John Hamilton. And they went to Dillinger for money. Now, he had uh, kind of like a, a polygamist husband here with all... <laughs> big love all these women who were asking him for money and it was at a point where he wasn't doing so well himself uh, after his escape from crown point he was pretty much dependent on babyface nelson and the nelson gang for any bank jobs that were going to come his way so it didn't take opa long and pat Sherrington long to hit skid row they were finally arrested in a Chicago hotel room in June, the, a month before Dillinger died. And they wanted his nefarious attorney, Louis Piquet, to represent them. Now, Piquet didn't do anything until they greased his palm with silver, right? And Dillinger really didn't have the money to give him to defend Opa Long and Pat Sherrington. So they more or less had to cop a plea in our modern parlance. They went before the judges, but they had no defense, and they went to prison. And Pat Sherrington went to prison for a good two years. She went to the federal prison in West Virginia, Alderson. I don't like to disparage Martha Stewart after so many years, but it's best known as the place where Martha Stewart was incarcerated after her uh, convictions, federal convictions on fraud. So Pat Sherrington, the one break she had was going to Alderson because it was a progressive jail. She was having a lot of physical problems. She had appendicitis. She was a sick lady, and part of the reason she hung around the Dillinger gang was to try to get some money, some money for doctors, for the operations that she needed. And that was a common thread with a lot of these gun malls is that the money that they got from their gangster boyfriends and husbands went to things like doctors and dentists. I don't know if the, uh, if the life was so stressful that it affected their health so badly. That's where a lot of the money went. So Pat Sherrington went to Alderson uh, Federal, and it was a uh, progressive dormitory-style 
a maximum security prison, but with a minimum security ambiance. And so there she took some classes. She was evaluated. She was lucky in that sense. She served a two-year prison term there. Now, her sister, Opal Long, did not go to a country club for female convicts. She went to the Minneapolis City Jail. You might know uh, something about that facility. It was a jail. Her letters to Russell Clark at that point are replete with terms about solitary confinement and the things that make it a maximum security environment. And she only served a six-month prison term. Now, Opal Long, after her release from prison, she left the criminal life. She went on to marry an employee of the Chicago Tribune, and she lived in Chicago. She lived in a Chicago neighborhood until her death in 1969. Interestingly enough, Opal Long, Evelyn Frechette, and Polly Hamilton all died within a two-year period in the late 1960s. It's an interesting coincidence, Polly Hamilton being the woman who was going out with Dillinger and living with him in the apartment of the woman in red before he died. Even though Opal Long's life after Dillinger was more or less positive and she lived the life of a middle-class married woman in Chicago, her sister didn't meet the same fate. Her sister stayed in the fringes of the underworld, hanging out with some low-level underworld people. She died of unknown causes in 1946 or 47, right around that time. And she died in an apartment on Clark Street in the near north, very close to Chicago's Loop. However, in spite of the fact that she died in a heavily populated area, her body wasn't discovered for a couple of days. So by the time she was found, her, her cause of death could not be established. If she was murdered, there's always that possibility. It was never, it was never determined. She was buried in a very secretive manner in an unmarked grave, grave in Chicago's Wonders Cemetery. And, uh, her sister Opal Long is, uh, listed in cemetery records as having been the person who supervised the burial arrangements. So, she is resting in Wonder Cemetery, and um, a couple of years ago, as an aside, myself and a few other people put the money together and we bought her a headstone. So Pat Sherrington now has a headstone, and uh, that's kind of nice, right? Something for this lady who really never got a break in life. That is really wonderful, so, yeah. yeah. Whatever happened to Junebug? Can I ask you that? She went on to give some interviews with some historians. I believe uh, a friend of mine, Tom Smewson, talked to her at one point. And uh, what happened there was that she really didn't tell him or the people he was with anything they felt they could use. And uh, that's pretty common when talking to family members, with some exceptions. I mean, I know I can think of some exceptions. I mean, Edna Murray, the Kissing Bandit's granddaughter, Pam Tippett, wrote a, a book about her grandmother. But very often the relatives of these notorious persons, 
either don't know anything or don't really want to talk. I think in the case of June, maybe she was hoping to get paid, and when she saw there wasn't any money, she decided not to talk to them or give them anything that they could use. But I think that's how we found out that Dillinger called her June bug. And then she passed away a couple of years ago. But she was an item. I mean, she was out there talking to people and uh, making her presence known. Sure, sure. Well, I really want to talk about Lester Gillis, a.k.a. Babyface Nelson, and his wife, Helen Gillis. It's a compelling story, this relationship of theirs. Can you talk about their personalities, their compatibility? And he was psychotic, as you mentioned earlier, and it takes a special loyalty to stand by someone as crazy and unpredictable as Babyface Nelson. If you could expand on this dynamic between them. Uh, yes, um, Helen Gillis sort of stands on her own two feet as a mall of the Dillinger era because of the fact that she was married to Babyface Nelson, Les, as she called him. She had two children with him, and she was loyal to him and uh, occasionally traveled around with the children, but more often than not had to sacrifice her relationship with her children and leave them with relatives so that she could hang around with him. Now, there's different schools of thought about Lester Gillis. As with all of these characters, Dillinger just seems to be so rife with um, people having different opinions, and they all love to fight with each other. But uh, the book about Babyface Nelson, Portrait of a Public Enemy, by Bill Helmer and Steve Nichols, paints a very sympathetic picture of Babyface Nelson, one that not many historians share, by the way. I'll take the viewpoint that Nelson was uh, not a nice guy, probably enjoyed using his Thompson submachine gun, and uh, we'll leave it at that. So these two people grew up in the same neighborhood, not to interject myself, but I did visit that neighborhood only two winters ago, and uh, it was fun. I took a bus with my friend Tom Smewson, who's a Dillinger historian, and uh, we took a bus in the dead of Chicago winter to Babyface Nelson's neighborhood, and I saw the house that he lived in and the house Helen lived in. So uh, my point in putting myself into the story here is that they lived almost around the corner from each other. They were about two blocks away from each other. They both grew up in middle-class-looking establishments, nice homes, and uh, two blocks from the bus stop, two blocks from the, the park and the deli. There was nothing in their childhood to indicate that they would develop into such notorious persons, you know? But... Babyface Nelson was uh, from childhood, a child who couldn't fit in. He went from Catholic schools to reform schools, and we know all of this. And um, she was in a troubled home in the sense that there were a lot of children in the home. Her mother died in childbirth, and she ended up leaving her home at the age of 16 to have a baby with him and move into his family home. She was very close with his family, maybe more so than her own. 
and his family members were the people who took care of her children when she went off on the road with him. So here we have Helen's gradual dissension into the underworld as babyface Nelson's wife. He was convicted on charges. Uh, he was a jewel thief. He was a bank robber. He went to Joliet. She is credited, if I may, with providing the weapon, the firearm that he used to escape from Joliet and route to a trial for something else. And she joined him after his escape, went underground with him, and really never came back from the other side after that. Her uh, relationship with her children during that period of time, it was spotty. So um, her loyalty was kind of paraphrased by what she told a judge. A judge said to her, how could you leave your children to run around with him? And she said, I knew Les didn't have much longer to live. And I wanted to be with him as long as I could. And that statement kind of almost was like a marquee over her life, flashing lights. She never resumed life in the underworld after she was released from her her uh, prison sentence on federal harboring charges. She went back to her family. She resumed life with her children and her grandchildren and lived a quiet life in Chicago until she died in 1987. And she lived all of those years, 50-some years of life, without babyface Nelson. And when she died, she was buried alongside of him in St. Joseph Cemetery in Chicago. Husband and wife, the uh, the tombstones say. So uh, she put her money where her mouth was, so to speak, and that she never had a discernible relationship with anyone after babyface Nelson. Interesting. Could you talk about the death of babyface Nelson in Barrington, Illinois, and the last hours they shared together? Yes, I will. She was with him at the time that he was killed. The reason that she was with him was because they were pretty much outcasts by the time that Dillinger was killed. There was a Dillinger was killed in July, late July of 1934. Nelson was killed a couple of months later in November of 1934, around Thanksgiving weekend. After Dillinger was killed, Nelson had to lamb out of Chicago with Helen. They went out to the West Coast. It isn't commonly known that Nelson was a fixture on the West Coast. While he was connected in Chicago and connected to the notorious uh, mob of Roger Tuohy, Tommy Tuohy and Roger Tuohy, he was also connected to the Capone mob in Chicago. Nelson's connections were widespread, and he could go out to the West Coast and get shelter out there. So he was out in Nevada and the San Francisco area in the company of his accomplice, John Paul Chase, another guy named Joseph Fatso Negri, and the mob out there, and living more or less in secluded lodges, 
and um, trying to stay undercover as best he could. At that point, Helen was going into takeout joints and bringing meals out to him. They couldn't go into restaurants or, or anything that would kind of give them a payback for the life of crime. I mean, you know, you're living the life of crime, but you can't put on a uh, a gown and a, a tux in, in, in a James Cagney, Gene Hollow type setting and, and live the high life. You're living in trucks and hiding out in lodges and sneaking takeout. So they weren't exactly enjoying the spoils. And uh, that was how they were living until uh, November of 1934 when Nelson was reported to be in Barrington, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and he was spotted and reported to the FBI in the company of Helen Gillis and John Paul Chase. Now, at this point, two FBI agents went on the chase, horribly ill-equipped to deal with this guy. I mean, Babyface Nelson loved his Thompson submachine gun. He loved nothing more than gunning down a couple of G-men. And here you have these two FBI agents going out after Nelson with uh, uh, shotguns, or sidearms, a thirty-eight. So Nelson turns the car around on them and chases them. And they, they, they come to their sentences and they say, listen, what's in it for us? We're just going to get killed here. Whatever they said, they used their better judgment and they allowed Nelson to run them off the road or out of his proximity. Now the next level of the campaign of that day against Nelson kicked in with fatal results. Agent Sam Cowley, who was the inspector in charge of the Chicago field office, who had taken over for Melvin Purvis after Purvis fell out of favor with J. Edgar Hoover. And um, Sam Cowley and Herman Hollis, or Ed Hollis as he was called, went out after babyface Nelson in the place instead of the two agents who lost track of Nelson. They ended up in a shootout in a place called Barrington, Illinois. Herman Hollis was shot dead very quickly. He was shot right through the head. Sam Cowley was mortally wounded by Nelson, who got out of the car and went after them lock, stock, and barrel, literally with his Thompson submachine gun. These two agents were able to get 17 slugs into baby-faced Nelson before Hollis died and before Cowley was mortally wounded. Now, Helen Gillis, at this point, had jumped into a ditch, and John Paul Chase was um, in a ditch after having shot at and killed and mortally wounded, respectively, the two agents. Babyface Nelson was also mortally wounded. They got him into the car, left the two agents, and went to a neighborhood uh, called Niles Center. I believe now it's known as Skokie. And they brought Babyface Nelson to a house where he was visited by his friend who was a Catholic priest. Some people say the Catholic priest administered last rites. I believe that that's probably true. 
It's what priests do. And um, they took Nelson out of this house as he was dying, and they brought him to a cemetery. At this point, he had died, and they laid him down on the ground right outside of St. Paul's Cemetery in Nile Center. Helen Gillis said, Les didn't like the cold, so she wrapped him in a blanket. And then John Paul Chase and Helen Gillis parted ways. John Paul Chase went on the lamb, and Helen Gillis went back to Chicago. Now, you know, you can almost picture the, uh, uh, what is that line from All About Eve when Thelma Ritter says, you can almost picture the bloodhounds nipping on her rear end. She goes back to Chicago. It's Thanksgiving. She makes a phone call to Lester Gillis' sister, Juliet, and makes the arrangements for the FBI to pick her up. And they did. And she was arrested, and uh, Babyface Nelson's body was discovered and brought to the morgue. And she was charged with um, harboring. And uh, I believe she was also charged with breaking parole because she had been arrested after the Battle of Little Bohemia in Wisconsin and um, had been released at that point and broke parole. And um, if I could interject that the reason that FBI agents released Helen Gillis after Little Bohemia was because they wanted to trail her back to babyface Nelson, but she eluded them. She She gave them the slip. So uh, now they had her. They had her in custody. She was another one of those die-hard malls that never gave any information. In fact, while she had been in custody after Little Bohemia and she was given the third degree, she prided herself on the fact that she never told them anything. And she was quoted by uh, Fatso Negri to that effect, who was uh, Nelson's accomplice, that when she uh, gave them the slip after her arrest and parole following Little Bohemia, she said, I didn't tell those G-men nothing. Back again after these messages. And we are back for a final time. So I know that this is not a central part of your book, but as you're a gangster historian, you talk about them a little bit, and the Barker Carpus gang comes up a lot on this show. So I wanted to ask you about them. What was the girlfriend situation like for Elvin Carpus and Doc and Freddie Barker, who all traveled around, of course, with Ma Barker? Could you talk about that, that situation and, and the group dynamic when other women were introduced? Uh, yes, the Barker Corpus Gang is um, a different entity from the Dillinger Gang. Unfortunately, because of cer- the way certain books were written, like, again, uh, I love John Dillinger's uh, first really important book, uh, The Dillinger Days by John Toland. It's I just love that book. But he kind of mischaracterized Dillinger as being such an integral part of the St. Paul underworld after the Crown Point escape, but he really wasn't. You know, he he was just in the place and time where he could uh, work as a bank robber with Babyface Nelson, and Babyface Nelson had surrounded himself with bank robbers that were stationing themselves in St. Paul. 
And uh, the Dillinger Malls at that point were sort of fragmented from different um, who was with this guy, that guy who had joined Babyface Nelson's mob. But the Barker Caucus Gang was a separate entity from anything that Dillinger was doing. And uh, I guess the main people that we think of are the Barkers and Alvin Carpus. Unless you really want to go all geek and start talking about who kidnapped who, you know, who was in on the Bremer and who was in on the ham. But when we're talking about Fred Barker, his girlfriend's name was Paula Harmon, and she had a nickname, Fat-Witted Harmon. <laughs> and she was one of these um, veteran malls. <laughs> she was a veteran of uh, gangland uh, from the 1920s when she was married to another St. Paul gangster named Charles Harmon. And she went through a couple of them and ended up with Fred Barker. But unfortunately for the relationship between Fred Barker and Paula Harmon, and unfortunately for us historians, there isn't a whole lot of paper on them. And I, in fact, I don't recall ever seeing a photograph of Paula Harmon, although she was She's never gotten any good press at all. Beth Green, who was the, the main mouthpiece who really used to uh, very colorfully describe some of these women, said that Paula had a funny face and she looked like she was in an accident. Her face was all pushed in. And then other sources say that she was drunk a lot. I think that Alvin Carpus said that she was basically considered a woman who it wasn't safe to have her around. They weren't moralists when it came to booze, obviously, but they didn't like it because, of course, people get loose when they drink, and uh, they really didn't like to see women drinking because I guess the gangsters themselves had these kind of innate prejudices against women that, well, women talk, you know, and uh, and if they're drunk, they're really going to talk, you know. So she fell out of favor uh, very quickly with the likes of Alvin Carpus and uh, the other Barkers. Now, in terms of Ma Barker, we could look at it like this. Doc Barker, the other Barker's son who was involved in the ham and the Bremer kidnappings, he was never seen with anybody. He never had a girlfriend or, or anything that um, anybody's ever took note of. So you don't know. Was he closeted in those days? It's possible. We, we'll never know. Or we could say that perhaps uh, he didn't um, want to go against his mother. Alvin Carpus said in his book, The Alvin Carpus Story, and then later in the Robert Livesey book on the rock, that Ma Barker was jealous of other women and women who were around her sons. According to Alvin Carpus, this did not extend to Dolores Delaney, who was the young girl that was going out with Alvin Carpus. She had his baby. She really wins the Purple Heart for having been shot while she was eight months pregnant and uh, arrested and gave birth in prison to his son and had to serve five years, a much longer term than any of the other women. Um, I'm talking about 
Dolores Delaney here, the girlfriend of Alvin Carpus. According to Carpus, Ma Barker liked her. And um, the possibility is that she was just young and malleable and uh, Ma Barker felt that maybe she could manipulate her. She was only 16 years old when she started going out with Carpus. And then we have other women who are colorful women, but uh, again, not really over-researched. I mean, Myrtle Eaton is an interesting character who was uh, going out with William Weaver, who was involved in the Prima kidnapping. So Myrtle Eaton was picked up and later served time for harboring members of the Barker Corpus gang. She was, uh, from all accounts, a very hard-boiled professional criminal in her own right. She was a shoplifter. You know, you had women in this um, ilk, some of whom had their own professional criminal identities. Not many, but Myrtle Eaton was one of those. Another one of those was, of course, the kissing bandit, Edna Murray. And uh, she had been a veteran of two or three prison escapes. And she was a, a criminal in her own right. And also through marriage, you know, having been married to um, a jewel thief, a uh, bank robber, and then later involved with Valmy Davis, who was involved in the hand and the Bremer kidnappings. So um, some of the St. Paul malls had their own identities. I mean, Edna Murray, would, she actually had two uh, she had two nicknames, right? She was the Rabbits, which was her nickname because she had escaped from two prisons, and the Kissing Bandit, which is uh, more or less almost uh, mythological. Nobody really knows where that one came from. But, you know, the Barker Corpus gang seemed to have women that were uh, of a more uh, pedigreed gangland background. Beth Green, for example, was the common law wife of Eddie Green, who was a hanger-on to both the babyface Nelson bank robbing mobs and also the crowd that hung out in the Green Lantern. I guess, Eric, uh, being a St. Paul native, you certainly know about the, the Green Lantern and Harry Sawyer and that whole area of the underground in St. Paul that was involved in bribing police and bribing politicians and allowing the whole 1930s Midwest crime wave population to proliferate there. I mean, Frank Jelly Nash hung out in the Green Lantern. The Holden Keating gang hung out there. Alvin Carpus before the Barker affiliation. I mean, so women like Beth Green were associated there for 10 years before anything ever happened to bring them to the attention of the FBI. So, I mean, some of the, the women of the Barker Corpus gang had very deep criminal genealogies in the St. Paul area. And that's really in contrast to the Dillinger women who were either rural or Maybe they were urban, but they, they 
ended up by chance with Dillinger gangsters. Not, not because they were hardened criminals themselves or like the St. Paul women were. And, um, there's one other, uh, crossover I might mention, Marie Comforte, who was Homer Van Meter's mall and she was a real crossover who ended up in St. Paul but had started out as a Chicago Dillinger gal. There isn't any one description. There isn't a rubber stamp that you can put on any of them. They all seem to have very disparate backgrounds. And just for people who don't know, Homer Van Meter was basically John Dillinger's right-hand man for the last year of his life. You know, it's funny that you say that for readers, and I apologize. You know, Dillinger geeks like myself, we throw out names like Homer Van Meter, and what? What do you mean you don't know who he was? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) We don't even think to say he was so-and-so, but you're right. Who's ever heard of Homer Van Meter outside of we Dillinger people, you know, he was um, actually one of Dillinger's friends. And maybe they say no honor among thieves or how can these people have had friends? They were blood brothers back when Dillinger was really wet behind the ears and a young, uh, almost first offender thrown into uh, the Pendleton Reformatory in Indianapolis when he was only 19 years old, sentenced to two consecutive terms for armed robbery. And uh, Homer Van Meter was his friend in Pendleton. And uh, Van Meter had a reputation for being a clown and uh, goofy. And uh, all of these reputations stemmed from prison. But interestingly enough, Homer Van Meter was an enemy to Dillinger's other best friend, who was Harry Pierpont. Pierpont did not like Van Meter and uh, did not like Babyface Nelson, and the feeling was mutual. So, uh, But Dillinger had his best friend, Homer Van Meter, whom he referred to as Van. They never called him uh, Homer. I think he's called Homer in mostly every movie that includes him, but they called him Van, and uh, he was the person who saved Dillinger's hide. I mean, once Dillinger was in Crown Point, it's believed by some historians that Homer Van Meter made the arrangements with Babyface Nelson to get some of the money that was uh, used to bribe certain officials and... uh, paved the way for Dillinger to do his wooden gun escape from Crown Point County Jail. And then Van Meter hooked Dillinger up 48 hours after his escape from Crown Point into the Sioux Falls bank robbery, which then ushered Dillinger into the scene that was populated by these St. Paul bank robbers like Tommy Carroll and uh, Eddie Green, who was the common-law husband of Beth Green, who was the mall who turned out to be the informant that really in- informed not only the FBI, but just about everybody who's ever studied Dillinger, who's read her FBI revelations. Beth Green was the one who we can all thank for what we know today about St. Paul. And... uh 
The interesting thing about Dillinger is that he just brought so much heat into St. Paul. And I think personally that Beth Green revealed so much to the FBI because she was so angry because she was had lived this quiet underworld life for 15 years. And the minute Dillinger came to town, all of that ended because he brought the G-men. He brought the G-men into St. Paul. And that was the beginning of the end for that whole dynasty. I mean, Harry Sawyer went to prison and it was just completely busted apart by the simple fact that Dillinger arrived at St. Paul to work with Babyface Nelson. Yeah, and the, the Barker Carpus gang had a lot to do with the crumbling of the layover system in St. Paul as well. Up until the point when they arrived, criminals generally behaved themselves within the city limits. But then Elvin Creepy Carpus, as, as the brains behind the gang, started to get bold and decided to kidnap Ham and Bremer inside the city and help blow things up too, at the same time Dillinger was. I see what you mean. And also that some of these people had some connections to organized crime, like Ham had been a brewer and used um, connections to provide prohibition beer. So they went, they, they, you know, there's an old expression, don't do a certain thing where you eat. And I think that that's what they did. Exactly, exactly. Do we have time to talk about Bonnie Parker a little bit? She's a totally different creature than the women we've covered already. But but if you could talk about her and what, what sort of separates her from the other malls we've discussed so far. Bonnie Parker is so marginalized in, in the scope of the 1930s Midwest crime wave. It, it's just amazing how how much of an outsider in life and in death she has remained. For one thing, she was a Southwestern criminal. Uh, having her venue was more or less Texas, um, Louisiana. She was killed in Louisiana. Clyde was from Huntsville Penitentiary, which was in Texas. So geographically, she's out there. She's not in that little cocoon, that five-state cocoon of the Midwest crime wave, which was basically what? Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Ohio. She was further west. So that was one thing. But the other thing that keeps Bonnie Parker almost segregated from the Midwest crime wave proper is that she was a woman who owned what she did. You know, in our modern parlance, she owned it. She was photographed repeatedly with guns. She was photographed with that signature beret that uh, just seems to define the entire era somehow. And um, she had an artistic bent. She wrote poems. And um, in my opinion, her poetry is fascinating and brilliant. I mean, I think it was Brian Burrow who wrote that it was doggerel. You know, as a college English major myself, I know that doggerel is like the worst insult that you can ascribe to a poet. <laughs> but I thought her poetry was fascinating. It was the first account of life on the road with an outlaw from the voice of a woman and written in the first person. You know, I say it with pride. I once knew Clyde when he was honest, upright and clean. I mean, 
that's priceless in the uh in the scope of the of an era where you re we really don't know very much about what people were thinking and feeling she said it all through her poems and in that respect she was very different from other malls i mean to best categorize other malls i'll quote the woman who met them personally, she was the woman who was living in uh, Boss's Birchwood Lodge. And at the time that the gang was holed up in Little Bohemia Lodge, Audrey Boss. And she went over with her relatives just to see what was going on. And she saw them. She saw John Dillinger. She saw them all. And she said uh, they did not want people to take a great note of who they were. And, and that statement always uh, stuck with me in an era where people are so out there and um, everybody's out there uh, in Twitter or wherever we are. You know, that line, they didn't want anyone to know anything about them. That was the description that could categorize just almost any one of these women, but not Bonnie Parker. Bonnie Parker, while on the lamb, wanted people to know as much as they possibly could about her. And she was successful in that goal to leave an imprint and to leave a mark. I'd like to ask you about the motivations for these women you wrote about. You, you've commented on it a little, but I'd love it if you could expand a bit on this. What drove these women to go on a life on the run? with these notorious gangsters? Well, I think the motivation of these women, and barring people like Helen Gillis, say, who was married to Babyface Nelson and who had children with him, I think we can maybe leave her out of the equation a little bit. I think that across the board, the motivating factor was monetary gain. And uh, disputing the common stereotype that exists to this day of um, women who hang out with uh, powerful gangsters being uh, dressed in gowns and jewels or uh, lounging poolside. During the Great Depression era, the motivations were pretty basic, uh, almost base, if I may. Dillinger fixed uh, his girlfriend Polly Hamilton's teeth. Uh, she was able to get to the dentist in the, the weeks that she lived, during which she lived with him in Chicago before he died. Uh, Evelyn Frechette was able to go to the dentist. Also, um, Pat Sherrington, who, as I said before, was able to see doctors because she suffered from appendicitis and appendicitis-related illnesses. There was a culture of sickness and uh, decay around these women, in spite of the fact that most were very young, the ranging in age from, say, 16 to maybe 35, a culture of decrepit, uh, not getting any better in life kind of feeling. And people that live on that level are happy just to get the basics. It got a little better for Evelyn Frechette by the time she was uh, blasted out of her apartment on Lexington Avenue in, with uh, John Dillinger 
in uh, your area, St. Minneapolis, St. Paul, she had left an inventory behind of uh, maybe 30 dresses, 10 coats, uh, 50 pairs of shoes, the Imelda Marcos of the 1930s uh, crime wave. They did amass material gains as things progressed and as the money rolled in. Things that they not necessarily were able to keep. When they were arrested in Tucson, the, the treasure trove of jewelry that Mary Kinder had to give up, jewels, diamonds, everything was confiscated. Uh, so they might have had nothing. They, they, it's sort of like equated with the starting out uh, at a mountain, you're at the bottom, you get to the peak, but no sooner do you get to the peak that you stumble and you're back right down at the bottom again. Whatever they did accumulate, they lost anyway. But I think that the the immediate need was just a simple desire for goods, for services, for some fun. Dillinger took Mary Longnaker, his um, original girlfriend, the one I mentioned before, the single mother fighting for custody of her children. He took Mary Longnaker to the Chicago World's Fair, and that was a really big deal. Uh, she took a girlfriend along. They, I think for, it was $2 to get in and, and then you could see the uh, entire world right there in, uh, in the Jackson Pond area of Chicago, you know. And think about it. In those days, people didn't even have commercial airlines. People didn't go like we do today. A hip trip to the Caribbean or uh, a flight to Europe. People couldn't do those things. So, Okay, you're going to the World's Fair, and that had to be an exciting moment for someone like Mary Longmaker. But again, while she was enjoying her trip to the World's Fair, Dillinger was paying her lawyer so she could get her kids back. You know, like, these women had needs. Their lawyers, their dentists, their doctors, and and their family, they would send money home. Evelyn Frechette used to send money home to the reservation. So uh, it was a pretty basic thing. Well, this has been great. Tell us about your work and where people can find your books and learn more about you. Oh, thank you. Uh, I uh, Did I mention that I've been interested in John Diligent since I was a child? Uh, my father was a, a cop, a New York City cop, but uh, we lived in Brooklyn, and, you know, in those days, you got books like, my father brought home a copy of John Tolan's The Dillinger Days from a dollar bin at the local drugstore. I don't understand why, but I got very, very in, immersed in it, fascinated by Dillinger. And that that kind of uh, obsession sort of was very uh, latent. It didn't kick in until uh, I was an adult, and... Uh, as an adult, I decided to just learn more, read all the books, meet the other researchers. And so, you know, it, it developed from there. And um, right now I'm working with another researcher on a book. Uh, her name is Lori Hyde. She's a prominent Dillinger researcher. And we're working on a book called um, <laughs> The Working Title, because it's not published yet, is Chasing Dillinger, Indiana's Matt Leach Collides with the FBI. So uh, I'm working on this police captain, Matt Leach, and his relationship to John Dillinger. And uh, that's been a kind of a fascinating way to stay immersed in the 1930s Midwest crime wave. 
completely immersed, you know. So uh, my website is called www. Don't we sound silly saying that at this point in time? Why do we say that? <laughs> but it's dillingeswomen.com, and it's um, recently redone. I had it done uh, in a more modern format. My original website was one of those old GeoCities free websites, but I got too embarrassed. I had to take it down and redo it professionally. You can uh, find links on that website. You can buy the book through Square, which is something that some people like to use. If you want to get it cheaper, you can buy it through Amazon. And uh, the other way you could get it if you really wanted to uh, go uh, uh, the extra mile and get a, a signed copy, <laughs> if you wanted one, you could email me for that. So uh, that's basically how you get the book. Is there anything else that I should say about myself? Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. But but that's great. I, th I think it gives listeners plenty of ways to discover your book and your work. And I must say, I, I am looking forward to your Matt Leach book when it finally comes out. Well, Captain Matt Leach, and not to get off on that because I, I don't want to, you know, take us off topic. He uh, was uh, fired at the behest of the FBI, and he died uh, in quest of diligence, which is what makes him so relevant. He was uh, driving to New York City in the 1950s, hoping to find a publisher to publish his book that he had said he wrote about Dillinger, and he was killed in a horrendous car crash coming home from that, um, that trip to a New York publisher. The manuscript is gone. No one has ever found a copy of it. The manuscript either burned up in the uh, fiery car crash or possibly wasn't really written, but maybe was just a series of drafts or notes. Anyway, that's uh, this book is almost done, and I'm very happy to be almost done with it because uh, seven years is too long to work on a book. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, this has been great fun, and thanks again for your time. Thank you very much for your interest in Don't Call Us Malls. I appreciate it. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.